Let's pray. Father, take my mouth and speak through it. Take our minds and think through them and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for thee, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's lovely, lovely to be with you again, and I do thank you so much for your support and for your prayers. Um, I don't know how many people know anything about me, but it's really lovely to be back in this beautiful place again. I've now lived and worked in Nepal with the International Nepal Fellowship for the last 16 years, and my home is in Sirket, in the west of Nepal, and I've just put a few pictures together to just show you on a walk around my neighborhood. I've been doing morning walks between half past five and half past six in the morning before it gets too hot. So, okay, so this is looking, this is not on my morning walk, it would be too far. But you go up above Sirket and look down into the Sirket Valley. And then that's my little house surrounded by fields, little very nice concrete box. And then the neighbors, oh, First of all, my housemates, my chickens, they cheer me up and make me laugh and give me a lot of eggs. And then these are the neighbors. So they have little concrete boxes too, but you can see the traditional house as it used to be with mud walls and, and tiles. And inside the house, that's what it was like. They would have very little furniture, just a bed really. And the kitchens, traditionally you have a mud oven and you sit on the floor and then when you're eating with people you sit on the floor around and eat your food. But I couldn't manage that so I've got a much nicer kitchen. This is my kitchen and I've got a little touring gas stove, little bread oven, fridge. It's quite nice. And then these are the local shops. So there's the sort of groceries where you get your rice and your sugar. And then if you want chicken, there's the chicken butcher preparing the day's chickens. And then... This is my fruit cellar, vegetable cellar. Always, it's not imported, it's what's in season. And then the bazaar down in the main town, there's still more people in the streets, but there's also, you can buy, you can buy quite a lot in Soket now. And if you want clothes, you go to the tailors with your material and they measure you and it's ready in a couple of days. In Soket, as in many places, there is the rich and the poor. These are both on my morning walk. So this big one, they've got a dairy and that's one family's house. And then next to it, that's two families' houses. They just have a little concrete box with no windows, a tin roof and tin doors. And that's my church. Um, and that's outside the church where 40 years ago there was no church in Soquette. There are now 55. And mine was the first one that started from when missionaries came and leprosy patients. Um, it now has the 500 members. On my morning walk, when I'm getting back towards my house, I often meet the people coming out of the five o'clock morning prayer meeting that happens every morning. Um, I don't know whether this is a big part of it, but it's quite exciting. Nepal is probably the fastest growing church in the world at the moment, so it's quite exciting to be there. So that's a bit of a picture of where I live. Now, in the first few months, INF missionaries spend time in Pokhara, for language learning and orientation to the country and culture. And when I started, the director, Steve Aisthorpe, told us, quite shockingly, the most important thing God has called you to Nepal for is to learn to know him better. And he was so right, and yet it's a lesson I have to keep learning over and over again. We've been forgiven and saved by Jesus so that we can be his friends and disciples. We're servants of each other, but we're sons and daughters of God, and I find it so easy to slip back into the servant mode with God. 
weighed down when I don't get it right as I think and not looking up to see the smile of the Father. I don't remember when I first knew Jesus as a saviour. I was a child, but it was on a crusader camp in Wales when I was 11 that I understood that my response to his saving love was to accept him as Lord of my life, learning to walk with him and live in obedience. And that commitment determined the course of my life. When I was 16, I read a prayer letter um, and through that, God called me to be a doctor in Nepal. I wasn't thinking of doing medicine, but because of that, I applied. And I applied to study medicine, and after I qualified, applying for posts was always with a view to preparing for Nepal. And I first applied for a post in obstetrics and gynecology because I thought there'll be a lot of babies. I'd better learn about that. And it was a, I found it was a work that I loved right from the beginning, and I do still love it, and I specialized in obs and gynae. And I can look back on experiences in UK and then in Pakistan and then later eight years in Papua New Guinea and I can thank God for all he taught me. And for almost 30 years after that prayer letter, I was wondering when Nepal would happen. After I'd been working in Papua New Guinea for about seven years, I was feeling it was probably time to move on. And I was praying about this and asking God, I was ready to go anywhere, I said, except to Pakistan. The three years in Pakistan had been very tough. And my father died about a year after I came back. And since then, leaving mum has been much harder and getting harder. And she knew what it had been like in Pakistan. And I just thought, no, I can't do that to her. I can't go back to Pakistan and leave her on her own. So I held that back. And then one day in the church in PNG, the minister preached on the cost of being a disciple from Luke chapter 14. And it's 26 and 27 says, whoever comes to me cannot be my disciple unless he loves me more than he loves his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his sisters and brothers and himself as well. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, I was convicted and I cried a bit. And then I told God that I was willing to go anywhere, even Pakistan. And this is what our God is like, because in the next week, in the Saving Health magazine, I saw the post in Nepal that I'm now filling. It was advertised, and God took me to Nepal. It was just the work that the experiences and the lessons of the past and my own inclination fitted me for. Our God is very good. And over the years, I've worked with government health services, teaching and encouraging, and helping government doctors to extend their services for women. And I've seen hospital services in the west of the country develop enormously, not really because of what I'm doing, but the government has been trying to improve them. When I first went in my whole region of 15 districts, there were only two districts where there was a hospital that could do a cesarean section. It was pretty terrible. But anyway, it has improved enormously. And I've seen a team of people grow up around me, and I've been challenged by the needs of women suffering from obstetric fistula. And the fact that there was no service and help for them in the half of the country that I lived in. Now, for those of you who don't know what I mean by fistula, just grit your teeth. A fistula is a horrible birth injury, and it happens when a woman suffers from a really difficult, prolonged labor. And she's unable to deliver the baby herself or to reach a hospital where she can safely be delivered by operation in time. And that hard, bony head of her baby squeezed into her pelvis, but unable to get through. It just compresses the soft tissues. It stops the blood supply to them, and they die. And when they die, a hole is formed. And suddenly, the woman discovers that she's unable to stop a continuous flow of urine. 
and sometimes if the bowel is also damaged, she can't control the stool either. And unless she is able to have surgery, she's going to spend the rest of her life suffering from incontinence, a stinking outcast from her society and often from her family also. She's going to be in pain from the sores due to urine burns. She's going to be grieving for her lost baby and completely unable to understand why this has happened to her. The injury destroys life and it only happens in countries where medical care for women is lacking. An obstetric fistula is a completely preventable tragedy. It's not seen in countries where all women have access to safe and supervised delivery. So Nepal is improving and we hope one day to get rid of it completely. But we're still treating women who've suffered in this way for up to 40 years. So with that challenge, I went to Ethiopia to learn how to repair fistula. And I've run fistula repair camps in Sirket at the government hospital for 10 years. And I've now seen a beautiful fistula center established. And we've treated over 300 women with fistula. And there can be no greater reward than to see the joy as a woman realizes she's dry, she's healed, and the suffering is over. But sometimes the injuries are so severe that even repairing the hole, there are still problems, either because the blood is just so tiny or too damaged, and some of them are completely impossible to repair. So, some pictures. This is Sabitri, who came to us. It was a bit challenging because we discovered she was diabetic, but after getting her sugars controlled, her operation was successful, and after 18 years of incontinence, she's dry. Surya Kala had, was one of our 40-year veterans, and it took two surgeries to get her dry, but the second time she danced. And then this is Dunki, who we have got the fistula closed. She lives in a very remote district in Bajira, but because of the damage, she's still not able to completely control her urine, and the family still make her sleep out in the stable. It's been great, but it's not been straightforward. I suffered burnout in 2009, and I'd wonder, wondered if I'd ever get back to Nepal. I had bilateral vitreous detachments that gave me such difficulty in vision that I thought for a while I'd have to give up surgery. But then I had the opportunity for surgery, and my vision was restored. Finding a donor to build the building was difficult for the fistula center. But then when the funds came through, we had the earthquake in 2015. Then we had political upheaval and a border blockade. No gas, no building supplies, no medicines. And then changes in government led to difficulties renewing visas and in 2016 exile for all of us. That's the last time I came. I think at that time I wasn't sure if I'd ever get back. But praise God, I did get back. And in 2015, the building was complete so that's, that's our fistula center building. And now instead of having to carry patients long ways, we've got, a ward right, uh, we've got a ward right next to the theater. Those curtains I fought for, you take privacy for granted. Having curtains around your bed was quite a battle, but we got them. And we have the nice theater, we have nursing station, and I've got an administrator who's just completed a course in... Um, in hospital management and master's degree so he's coming back anytime now and that was on the day of the opening that's our team so it's been wonderful to see this dream become reality we've now treated up 60 patients in the center 
in the year since the centre was opened. I expected that there would still be challenges, but I wasn't really ready for the actual struggles we met. So we had the official opening of the centre in September, and it was a lovely day, and we could welcome some of our international donors, and we had representatives from, there are fistula centres doing surgery in the east of the country, and doctors came to our opening. We had many INF friends and hospital friends, but we made mistakes in the planning of how that was done, and that made the hospital medical superintendent feel that insufficient respect and honour had been given to him and the, the government hospital, and that has soured the relationship for many months between the INF mission and the hospital, and it's made working quite difficult. We had erected a plaque. We had two plaques. One of them gave thanks to the donors on one side of the door, and the other one had the verse from Haggai 2, I will fill this house with my glory, says the Lord God Almighty, and in this place I will grant peace. And I'd had that verse up as a temporary one for weeks and asked everyone, is there any problem? Does this cause you any offense? Is it? And everyone said, no, why? You know, no problem. But in the opening, the provincial health minister opened both plaques. Photographs were taken and one journalist made a big thing about government minister opening Bible verse and we had to take it down. We've got a great team of nurses and helpers, few of them from INF, but most of them are on government contracts paid through INF. And both of the organisations therefore feel they own the staff and the hospital. And that's caused a bit of friction with the hospital wanting to take staff off to do their thing and to limit what we can do. We were unable at the appointment to, to find an anaesthetic technician when we were appointing our team. So now we've sent one of our new staff nurses and she's training to be an anaesthetic technician. It's a one-year training. She'll be back probably in February. But until she completes that to operate, I've had to rely on help from the government hospital and we can only operate when they can spare us some of their anaesthetic team, which means we're often operating at weekends or certainly Fridays. Then visa problems have continued. We're only granted a visa for a year at a time, and applications for renewal take a long time. My working visa expired in mid-February, and February and March are the busiest times of the year. Until the beginning of May, I had to stay on a tourist visa with a memorandum of understanding that said I could work in an advisory capacity. But it was busy, and the government hospital and the medical superintendent again and again was calling me to come and help because they were doing an operation and needed help. And uh, they were always present and they did all the signatures, but it was stressful. If someone had wanted to report me and make a thing, I could have been thrown out of the country. The medical superintendent, therefore my relationship with him has improved a great deal. My visa was the last official visa that INF, the group that I was in, has been granted. So since April, we haven't had any new visas. Salome Berger, a nurse who did a master's so that she would be able to apply for a visa. She wants to work with us in Circuit. She's there now, but she will be leaving in a few days because she hasn't got an official visa and she's run out of tourist visa time. It's been difficult, but for me, the very hardest thing has been working without another doctor to begin training in the management and surgery for fistula. The government hospital gynecologists are very busy with the demands of the hospital. 
They can't give a lot of time to the fistula center. They usually try and get there when I'm operating, but they haven't had a chance to learn about post-operative care and assessing them. And so when I've got patients in the hospital, it means I have to go every day to see the patients. And we've had patients all the time since the beginning of December until May. So I had over five months when I didn't have a full day off. And that took its toll. And so I came home, I was very exhausted and really on the edge of burnout again and wondering if the day will ever come when I can hand over a functioning fistula centre to the government hospital with a doctor there who is able to lead and to continue to serve the women with fistula. And God has given me a verse through Oswald Chambers. I don't know if you know my utmost for his highest, the daily readings. July the 28th, if you want to check me out. Maybe it will speak to you as well, because I don't think this is restricted to missionaries or whatever. The reading is a verse from Mark chapter 6, verse 45. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus said to his disciples, you go into the boat and row over to the other side, and he went up to pray. And it got to the evening time, and he's looking out, and they're getting nowhere. They're rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing against the wind and not getting anywhere, and he walks to them on the water. Oswald Chamber writes, we tend to think that if Jesus Christ compels us to do something and we are obedient to him, he will lead us to great success. In fact, his purpose may be exactly the opposite. We have the idea that God is leading us toward a particular end or a desired goal, but he's not. The question of whether or not we arrive at a particular goal is of little importance and reaching it becomes merely an episode along the way. What we see as only the process of reaching a particular end, God sees as the goal itself. Whatever my vision is of God's purpose for me, his true purpose is for me to depend on him and on his power now. If I can stay calm, faithful and unconfused, which I don't, while in the middle of the turmoil of life, the goal of God is being accomplished in me. God's purpose is the process itself. What he desires is that I see him walking on the sea with no shore, no success, nor goal in sight, but simply having the absolute certainty that everything is all right because I see him walking on the sea. It is the process, not the outcome, that is glorifying to God. His training is for now, not later. God's purpose is to enable me to see that he can walk on the storms of my life right now. If we have a further goal, we're not paying enough attention to the present time. However, if we realize that moment by moment obedience is the goal, then each moment as it comes is precious. The learning to know and to trust God takes a lifetime. And I do again thank you for your support and prayers. They mean so much. And I just made a slide of some current prayer points. But thank you.